Father, we believe that you are a good God and a good Father. Today can be a day where we celebrate our dads and it can be a day where we grieve the brokenness of the earthly fathers we have. Would you help us see you as a good father as we read the Bible, as we understand your son Jesus? Would you help heal the wounds that we have in our hearts and our minds? Would you help us know that you are a good father with arms open, that we can run to you, be loved by you, be protected by you? I pray that that would be the case, God. Would you give us eyes to see this morning and ears to hear, hearts to be soft and transformed into the likeness of your son as we look at your word? Would you change us? Would you help us be people that walk in the light? Would you help us expose the darkness where we're blind and change us? We ask it in your name. We pray it. Amen. There was a movie in 2007 called Enchanted, this is a Disney movie. I don't know how many of you guys have seen the movie Enchanted, and um, it kind of pokes fun at, at Disney itself, where the movie starts in cartoon form. It's animated, and uh, all of a sudden, the animated characters get sucked into the real world, into New York City, and there's a princess. Her character, Giselle, is played by Amy Adams, and uh, she's totally naive, right? Like she acts like a cartoon character. And in the midst of it, she runs into the actor Patrick Dempsey, uh, his character, and he's in a relationship with a gal named Nancy. And they're having a conversation and they're walking. It's about halfway through the movie. They're walking around Central Park and they start having this conversation. And uh, Patrick Dempsey's character uh, says like, so this prince you're looking for, because the prince gets jumps in and, and pursues the princess. Like, how long have you known him? She goes, well, just a day. And he's like, well, you're saying you love him and you're going to marry him and it's just been a day. You mean you, you felt like you've known him forever, even though it's only, you know, been a long time. And she goes, no, 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 no. We've only literally known each other for a day. And he's like, you can't be in love with somebody only knowing each other for a day. Well, when she's like, well, why not? Because she's just really naive. And she starts asking him about his relationship to this girl named Nancy. And he's like, well, we've been together five years and I don't, and she's like, you're not engaged yet? He's like, I, I don't even know if it's going to last. And he starts asking the question, well, like, how do you know if it will last? And then they bust into this whole song, this whole number called How Do You Know, right? And it's this big, bold, beautiful song throughout Central Park. And they're singing like, how do you know? You know that song, right? It was actually nominated for the best original song in the Oscars. It didn't win. Um, but it's a catchy tune, and the whole point of it, they're asking, like, if you're in a relationship, how do you really know that the other person loves you? And in it, some of the lyrics, as she's singing it back, like, this is how she's going to know if you love her. Uh, a couple lyrics, she says, you leave a little note to tell you that you're on his mind. Send yellow flowers when the sky is gray. Hey, right? And then later, it says... Uh, does he take you out dancing just so he can hold you close? Dedicate a song with words just meant for you. Ooh, right? Um, but the whole concept of this song, I think it, it, it resonates with a lot of us because when we step into a relationship, whether it's brand new, a day old, or five years old, we begin to question, like, as we put ourselves out there in vulnerability, like, is it reciprocated? Like, how do they know, like, am I, am I going down the right track? Like, you're putting yourself out there, whether you're talking with somebody that's new in a dating relationship, or maybe you've been married for a long time, and you're still asking, like, I, I don't know if they really love me. How do I show them 
that I love them. And it doesn't necessarily need to be relational, even though it can be, but if you step into a new job and you're tasked with something, your boss tells you to do something and, and you do your best shot and you go like, am I doing it right? Like until you get that feedback, that assurance from that person of like, you're doing great, you're on the right track. Isn't that helpful for us when we step into areas relationally that we're just kind of guessing and we don't know? The same could be true if you're in school and you have to write a paper and you write that paper and you go like, I don't know if this is going the right direction. And until your teacher, you get that first draft and the teacher goes, no, that's it. Keep going. Keep going. Then you go, oh, okay. Because you go, I, I'm just guessing. I, I, I don't really know. We all need assurance in the midst, in the context of our relationships, don't we? To continue to go. And we're asking each other, like, how, how do we really know? How do we know, again, whether it's relationally, uh, in the context of uh, somebody you're talking to, a significant other, it could be a teacher, it could be a boss, how do you really know if you're on the right track? It's exactly what John is trying to do here in 1 John chapter 2 that we're going to unpack. Because, again, the, the church he's writing to, there's, there's division, there's confusion, there's a group that's come in and says, this is actually what it means to follow God and to love God. And throughout the scriptures, you see that where there's people going like, this is actually what it means to love God and to follow Jesus. And then you go like, well, am I, am I doing it the right way? If I want to follow Jesus, if I want to obey God, if I want to honor him, am I doing the right thing? And it's massively confusing for the church that John is writing to, and it's massively confusing for us. Uh, my wife and I worked in the parachurch world for a long time, so we weren't directly connected to a church. We were on mission on a college campus, and when I got into church work in the last five years, being employed by a church, I don't know how many times this phrase has come out of my mouth in the last five years. Is that really a thing? Like, wait a second. This is what we're going to argue about. Like, like that, that's, re that's really a thing. Like, like, you're that upset about that thing? Um, and so to be curious and to be humble and to go, like, help me understand more, um, because in the, the subculture of the church, what has happened is a lot of things, just like the subculture of the time John is writing in, in the time Jesus is, the, the religious leaders decide to add certain things to following Jesus and obeying Jesus, and then you just go, like, wait a second, like, should I, should I be paying attention to this? If I'm trying to walk with Jesus, or is this something that's like extra, right? Like um, even in the last couple of weeks, there's been documentaries that have come out, if you guys have watched them, on Christianity, of different, uh, different sects of Christianity, and going like, women can't wear um, pants, like that's like, a, like some people are like really like hardcore, maybe you grew up in some type of system like that, like women couldn't wear pants, and I'm going like, is that a thing? Like is that like... Really, like that's a, that, because that's not a thing, okay? Like, um, and we can have a conversation longer if you want to, but I'm constantly going like, well, so how, it's so confusing to try and walk with Jesus in the subculture of the church. And so what John is doing, he's, he's cutting right through all of that. He's going, do you want to know how you love Jesus? And you're, I'm going to give you three indicators of actually knowing that you're on the right track to walking and loving God. So this is where we're going to unpack uh, what we just read in chapter 2. And what John is going to do in verse 3 is going to give an initial affirmation of what it means to know God, to love him, to follow his commands. And then he's going to follow it up with three indicators of assurance 
It's going to be in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9. And he's going to really drill down on a kind of final application in that last part of verse 9 for us. Uh, and, and even in this short amount of text, it really builds on the three themes that we've been talking about that John writes in these five chapters in 1 John, where it's this theme of knowing or belief, like how do you know? And then there's this theme of obedience or behavior. We're going to see that in the text, and then it follows it up with wrapping it in love. Those are kind of the three things that John keeps overlapping on top of each other through his five chapters. What does it mean to know or believe? What does it mean to behave or obey? And what does it mean to wrap it all in love? What does love actually look like? So just to give you some context, if you weren't here last week, what John is rolling out of is in chapter one, we talked about this phrase that he uses in verse six, verse eight, and verse 10 to start those verses. He uses the same phrase. He says, if we say dot, 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 and again, verse six, verse eight, and verse 10 of chapter one, if we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, we're a liar, we're not practicing the truth. And we talked about when we posture ourselves one way, when we say we love God, but we have this secret sin over here that we're not telling anybody, that's not good for us. And then the next phrase in verse 8 of chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, but we actually do, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that we talked about if we minimize, if we have the sin, but we say, oh, it's not that big a deal. It's not really that much of a problem because we're presenting ourselves in a way that's not accurate. That's an issue. And then verse 10, he said, you know, if we say we have not sinned at all, we make God out to be a liar and the word is not in us. And in that we talked about if we have this kind of posture of arriving we don't have to deal with anything. We've arrived, and that was happening at the time with some of this false teaching. He's going like, that's not okay. That's not good. And then he starts chapter two, but if you've sinned, right, you have an advocate. Jesus is your advocate if you follow him. He steps in to help you in the midst of your mistakes, in the midst of your sin. And we kind of talked about what sin actually means. So let's pick up because John does something similar in chapter two. He doesn't use the phrase, if we say. Instead, he uses the phrase, whoever says. So he's gonna do it again three times. He's gonna say, whoever says at the beginning of verse four, beginning of verse six, and beginning of verse nine. So let's talk about how we know we can be walking and doing our best to love God in the midst of all the confusion. Let's start in verse three of chapter two. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse four, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So the first phrase that we see is John uses whoever says dot, 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 that I know him, right? It's a buddy the elf shout out. I know him, I know him. Whoever says, I know him, I know Jesus, I'm connected with Jesus, I know him, I've given my life to him, I live for him, but if you say you know him, but you don't keep his commandments, John says, you're a liar, not walking in truth. And some of us 
if we're honest with ourselves, we can say, man, I, I know Jesus because I know I need Jesus because there's a gap between God and myself and everything I do, all the good I do, all the, uh, the good intentions, there's still a gap. And the only thing that can fill that gap, the only thing that can forgive me and get me reconnected with God is what Jesus has done on the cross because he lives a perfect life. He dies a sinless death and then raises from the dead and then he offers that life to me. And in exchange, when I give my life to him, when I pray and say, God, I realize I'm a sinner separated from you and I need you. Would you come into my life? Help me change. Then you say you know him. But if that's the only indicator of you knowing him because you don't want to go to hell and you want to go to heaven and that's it, do you really know him? Because if you say, I need Jesus for my salvation, but I'm just going to do whatever I want to do in life and you're not following what he says, you're not following his commandments, you're not obeying him. John is saying, like, that's, that's a problem. If you want to know you're on the right track to loving God, part of that is obeying what he says, keeping his commandments. And some of us, if we're honest, man, we just, um, we act like we're going through a buffet or like his commandments are a la carte. And we can kind of walk through and we can kind of pick and choose. Well, like, I'll obey that one. Because that feels good, and I feel like we all should all obey this one. But that's, uh, that's, that's old. I don't really need to obey that one. And we kind of go past the vegetables. And we just, like, don't, don't pay attention to all the commands of God. And what John is saying is here is, like, obedience is it's not an optional practice. If you want to love God, Jesus says in John 14, if you want to love me, you'll do what? You'll obey my commands. And so for some of us, we need to ask honestly, like, where are we picking and choosing the things we want to obey and the things we want to go, ah, that's not that big a deal. Because the culture around us that doesn't know Jesus, they're just going to go, no, keep doing whatever you want to do, right? What did Jesus say? Like, the, the road is wide and it leads to destruction, but these commandments to say this is a narrow way to follow Jesus. And many of us, we kind of pick and choose what commandments we want to obey and what we don't. And John's going, don't do that. Actually, if you want to show that you love God, you need to obey his commandments. That's important for you to do. Now, here's where we get kind of twisted and confused on this. Because some of us, as I was kind of mentioning at the beginning, some of us grew up in environments that were not healthy and helpful. And so the idea of obedience makes us triggered to the idea of like, well, I was told to obey in this thing. And if I didn't obey, it was going to not go well for me. And so you kind of swing and overcorrect and go like, I'm not going to obey anything. And if you have grown up in a system where someone with spiritual authority has demanded inappropriate obedience. There's room and there's reason you would feel a little bit, ah, right? What, what do you mean obey? And again, there's been multiple documentaries that have come out just in the last couple of months that talk about this display and narrative of spiritual abuse. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And abuse, using that language, I know that sounds harsh and heavy, and some of us have endured physical abuse, but abuse at a root level is really about power and control at the expense of someone else. 
Abuse is about keeping, maintaining power and control at the expense of someone else. If some of what I'm saying, um, and I don't know a lot of your stories, where you grew up and how you grew up, it, it didn't even maybe need to necessarily be a religious uh, situation or a Christian situation. It could have been uh, just in your own home with maybe your own pa- parents. But if you feel kind of in your body like, like okay, yeah, I, I kind of identify with that. Like I grew up with a like you have to obey and do this type of thing and you're kind of scratching your head going, ah, I don't know. There's a book I would recommend, specifically, specifically if you've grown up in a Christian environment like that. There's a book that came out last year called Bully Pulpit by Michael Kruger. I would highly recommend that you read it to begin to understand what spiritual abuse is, begin to get healing if you need healing in that area. I'm going to read a couple quotes from him. First says this. He says, spiritual abuse is when a spiritual leader such as a pastor, elder, or head of a Christian organization, wields his position of spiritual authority in such a way that he manipulates, domineers, bullies, and intimidates those under him as a means of maintaining his own power and control, even if he's convinced that he's seeking biblical and kingdom-related goals. And some of us grew up in environments like this, Some of us were parts of environments like this where whoever was leading um, began to wield their power to maintain their control and it was not helpful and you were the victim in the midst of that. Another way he puts it, because it's it's hard to recognize this, and, and here's what he says. He also says this abusive behavior is um, perpetrated by God's anointed leader, a pastor, of God's anointed ends, such as church planning, spreading the gospel, often enabled by God's appointed institution, the church and its elders, and leveled against God's own people, church members. As such, spiritual abuse may be one of the most destructive practices around, is effectively spiritual child abuse. Those are harsh words, but I think they're true, and I think Um, as we look at John's words and the idea of knowing God and understanding, like, God, he's saying, like, you need to obey, obey Jesus' commandments, some of us can go, ah, that feels a little strange because I was told if I'm a woman I can't wear pants, and, like, do I need to obey that? Is that part of following God? And, and again, I I just want to say some of us need desperate healing in this category, in this area. And I know I'm using the pants one, and it's kind of funny and kind of silly because we're, like, that's crazy, but like it, that's why it's confusing. Because if somebody has put somebody and an appointed leader in a church and they're kind of wielding their power, they're wielding their control, you can go like, well, if, like that person's speaking for God, I need to obey that person. And some of us need massive healing in this area. And maybe some of the most damage has been done to us in and through people that have spiritual authority in our life. Now, I say all that in the context of like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Some of us could go, well, they said I need to obey this law. Like, I can't sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. They're abusing me. I was like, well, I don't, I don't think that's abuse. I think that's trying to follow the way of Jesus. And the best way to obey is what he uh, calls for you in the context of a relationship in that context. And so some of us, we, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's still a way for us to obey, but it's not dominated by control or manipulation or bullying, those types of ways. It's actually 
caused in love, even though it's true. And for some of us, we just need to be reminded of that because Jesus, in his goodness, he calls us to obey even when it's hard, even when it's countercultural. He calls us to obey because he wants the best for us, because he wants you to be fully human, and he knows that the way you're going, the things you're attaching yourself to, ultimately will not bring you life. They will bring you death. And he's saying, no, you need to obey because I want the best for you, even when it's hard. So how do you know if you're on the right track in loving God in the midst of this? The first thing is that you would obey his commandments and realizing and recognizing that if you try to obey his commandments without a relationship with him, it's going to be real confusing. You're not going to understand it. Right, just like Josh McDowell says in the context of parenting, he talks about, um, he says, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. And so you have to have a relationship with Jesus first. You have to understand that he's for your good and that he wants the best for you. Because if you believe he's for your good, he wants the best for you. As you hear his commandments, you will want to hold tight to them even when they're hard. They will lead to life. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you're trying to do these rules and follow these ways, it could lead to rebellion, could be confused. John is assuming that his readers have a relationship with Jesus. So again, how do you know you keep his commandments? Verse 6, what's the second indicator that he says, this uh, whoever says language? He says, whoever says in verse 6, he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So whoever says, I'm abiding in Jesus, not just that I know him, but man, I'm abiding in him. I'm connected to him. This language of abiding can sometimes be confusing for us because we don't use it in our normal vocabulary, but it really means that you're rooted, that you're knit together, that you're tethered together. So if you're saying, I'm tethered together to Jesus, I'm knit together with him, you ought to walk in the way that he walks. We were having a conversation with some friends a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about um, our fears, like unusual fears. And like one of our friends was like, I'm really scared of wet, cold surfaces. And I was like, that's, I want to, tell me more. Like I'm really, I'm really curious about how you are afraid of cold, wet surfaces. That's kind of interesting. And then our other friend said, well, like I'm, af- I'm terrified of rat kings. Now, as your pastor don't get on your phone right now and Google rat kings. Just don't do it. Just do it later, a space where you can throw up. Um, if you look at an image, because what a rat king, and I didn't, I didn't know what a rat king was. I was like, what? I don't even know what that is. Tell me, tell me more. And they said, like, a, a rat king is when these rats in sewer systems will go after a piece of food or something, and there's, like, uh, a, a number of them, but they will begin to tie their tails together, not on purpose, but they're both going for food, they're sticky stuff, it's gross, and all of a sudden their, their tails will tighten, and they'll try to get away, and like a shoelace, it'll go tighter. And so all of a sudden you have 20 rats that are connected by the tails. Again, don't Google it, it's disgusting, okay? Um, they're, they're connected, and they can't get away from each other. Why am I talking about that? A, why am I talking about that? Oh, here's why I'm talking about that. Because this idea of abiding, being rooted in, being tethered to, yes, this is it. Don't laugh, Brittany. 
Whatever you tether yourself to will bring you life or will bring you death. Those rats, any picture you find, they're all dead because they can't survive that way. But when you tether yourself to your sin, when you tether yourself to even good things, that's what the Bible talks about idolatry. It's good things sometimes that can be ultimate things that you would put this thing above your relationship with Jesus. You put your family above your relationship with Jesus. You put your career above your relationship with Jesus. Your kids above your relationship with Jesus. That's called idolatry. That's what the Bible says. And when you worship an idol, when you put anything above the space that Jesus should occupy, it will lead to death. And so John is saying, if you're claiming that you abide, you're tethered together to Jesus, you should walk in the way he walks. How does Jesus walk? We've talked about this. We'll continue to talk about this. The shape of Jesus' path is in a J. It goes down into death to go up to resurrection. And as Jesus calls you to follow him, he invites you to get life from him. And he says, follow me. And he takes your hands gently. He leads you down into places that are hard, down into places that are death sometimes to your preferences, to your own abilities, so that what? You can love other people. That's the way of Jesus. If you look at Philippians 2, he empties himself for the good of other people, and that's what we're called to do. If we say we abide in him, we say we're connected to him, not just that we know him, but we're tethered to him, then we should walk in the way he walks. We don't walk around arrogant. We don't walk around entitled. We don't walk around prideful. We don't walk around in that way because Jesus didn't walk around that way. How did Jesus walk around? in humility, and love, and care, always putting others' needs before his own. That's what we're called to do. If we want to know, are we loving God? We need to obey his commandments. We need to walk in the way that Jesus walked. And again, that's just an easy, you just start reading the scriptures and how Jesus lived his life and how he started walking. Do we weep with those who weep? We ought to if we're called to walk in the way that Jesus walked. It's a good indicator for us if we love him, we're both keeping his commandments, we're walking in the way he walked, which again, I'm, I'm pretty sure you can fact check this later this afternoon, but the 1986 classic by Run DMC and Aerosmith, I think was inspired by this verse. Um, so how did Jesus walk? Look at verse seven. It says, beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment. But an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is a word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. This is classic John. Don't do this, but wait, wait a second. It's like you just said you're not writing me an old one, but it's a new one. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What does John mean here? He's saying this old commandment, it's to love God and love others. That's not new. That's the same from the beginning. But because Jesus has come and inaugurated the kingdom in his life, death, and resurrection, it's new. You have a new way to live it out as you surrender your life to Jesus. Empowered by his spirit, you can love at a different level now. The light is beginning to shine in the midst of the darkness. And Jesus, in John chapter 13, after he washes his disciples' feet, again, picture this. Imagine just for a second somebody that's hurt you, somebody that's betrayed you, somebody that has left scars on your heart and your mind. Jesus is with one of his closest followers, Judas, as they celebrate a meal, 
And then Jesus models what it looks like to walk like him as he serves them, as he bends down and he washes their feet, which was like a servant's job. And he washes Judas's feet, even though he knows he's going to betray him. Man, I, I, like that's really challenging to walk that way. If I know somebody is going to hurt me, they're going to do something wrong to me, and I still move towards them in love? This is what John is calling us to walk in the way that Jesus walked. So after Jesus does that in John 13, he says to his disciples, I have a new command that I give to you, to love one another just as I have loved you. This is our calling as Christians, to love other people. So again, how do we know that we're on the right track in loving God? We keep his commandments. We abide in the way of Jesus as we walk in him. And then let's look at the last one in verse 9. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This last one that John mentions in verse 9, whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Again, this is, gets real practical and real challenging for us really quickly. Right? People that have hurt you. People that have done wrong to you, people that have betrayed you, do you still and are you harboring hate in your heart for those people? I know a good question for me when I run through this, like, do I really love my brother, love my sister, or am I harboring this hate to them? Do, do I wish ill upon them? Right? Because a lot of those people, they're not in my life anymore. I don't deal with them directly. I put up, I think, appropriate boundaries. <laughs> But what does it mean for me to love them, to pray for them? Oh, in, in my time with the Lord, am I praying that they would um, be, have a terrible situation in their life? Or am I praying good on them? Am I praying that God would meet them and change them and bless them? Or am I just angry at them and going, oh, you just don't know. Like, I, you don't know what they did. And I can never forgive them. What John is saying is if you say you're in the light, but you hate an image bearer, an image bearer that reflects me, you're actually in the dark. You're actually blind. One commentator said it this way, specifically about this verse, and even if you've had something done wrong to you and you feel like you have the right to hate that person, they say this, um, they have not a license to hate even though they are in the right. Hate is not an occasional outburst of anger. It's an attitude that's become a habit. So asking yourself, man, is there somebody in your life that you wish ill on, you've been hurt by, and you haven't released that person to the Lord? You haven't forgiven that person to the Lord? That's an indicator of showing you love God. How do I show I love God? You, you obey his commandments. You walk as he walked. You forgive people that have hurt you and you love them and you don't hate them. Jesus, in a conversation with his followers in Matthew 18, he's having this conversation about like, well, like, okay, I, I'll forgive him. Like, how often do I have to forgive him? Do I have to keep forgiving him? What does that actually look like? He has this conversation with his disciples and then he tells them this story in Matthew 18, verse 23 says this, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is a measurement of money in that time. 10,000 talents was the, the equivalent of about $6 billion today. Massive debt. This guy's probably not going to be able to pay back. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Verse 28, but when the same servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is about $12,000, which is still a significant amount of money to be owed, but it's not $6 billion. You see the gap that Jesus is trying to illustrate there. When he found somebody that owed him 600 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. Verse 29, and his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused. He went in and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Man, the illustration of what John is trying to drive down to us to, to learn what it means to walk in love, to understand what it means to love God on our end. There's something deeply tied to the way we love God and our ability to forgive those that have hurt us. Man, that's really challenging. That's really hard for us to hear and really hard for us to live out. Now, I think you can put appropriate boundaries. I don't think um, loving means you have to be in their life all the time. But again, using that grid of like, do you wish ill upon that person? And if you do and you're harboring kind of that hate, would you ask God to release that today? It's not something you can do on your own, but as you understand how God has forgiven you time and time and time again, and his arms are still open to give you grace upon grace upon grace, can you extend that grace to the person that hurts you? That's what it means. That's what it means to follow in love and follow in line with Jesus, to love our enemies, to pray for those who have persecuted us. So how do we know? As we kind of wrap up, how, how do we know that we're walking in line with loving God? We obey his commandments, we abide in the way of Jesus, and we walk out the way he walked. We model our life by the way he modeled his life for us, and then we love our brothers and sisters, even the ones that have deeply hurt us. That's how we know if we're loving Jesus and walking with him. And how do we do that? Like, how, how do you follow all of God's commands, man? It, it feels very tricky with, with our culture and with our own sinful desires, man. It, it's hard to obey God's commands. How do we stay close to Jesus and are bound to, to go wherever he goes in the midst of the, the road being uh, narrow and, and sometimes we get off the path? How do we love and forgive those that have given deep pain and hurt to us? We have no shot at doing this on our own effort. 
Like, you guys realize that, right? Like, I, I have no shot at doing those things uh, in my own effort. But when you give your life to Jesus, as we talked about in Romans 8, you now have a new power source to work from. As you surrender through prayer those things, if I have hate in my heart and God exposes that hate and going, God, would you help me? I don't want to wish ill on that person. I don't want to hate that person. I know that's not what you desire for them. Would you change my heart? And it comes through prayer and humility and conversation. We have no shot to accomplish it in our own power. And again, the way we do this is we align ourselves with the only one that's done it perfectly. And that's Jesus. To exchange our life, our effort, for his life, his effort on the cross. And in doing so, we have a new power source to work from, a new perspective to see from, and a new vision of life to love from. And this is why we make our way to the table every single week. This is why we walk an aisle that may seem weird or strange to somebody that's not used to this, but we come down and we take a piece of bread which represents Jesus' body given for us on the cross, and we dip it in this juice which represents his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and we remember that exchange, that we cannot do it on our own, that we have to trust God as we walk down. We go, man, I blew your commandments again. I didn't follow them. Man, I, I wasn't walking with you. I wasn't walking in the way you're walking, and man, I still have that hate in my heart. Help me change me. Help me know that what you've done on the cross is the advocacy for me to continue to live in freedom and continue to be changed. That's why we take communion every single week to be reminded of what's true. As we make our way down this morning, I think what we're talking about, what we're wrestling with is a, an important question to ask in the, in the midst of our confusion, like how do we know we love God? But maybe a more important question is how do we know that he loves us? And this is why... We come to the table to be reminded that God and his love and his mercy didn't leave us in our mess, but he moves towards us in the person of Jesus. As Jesus lives a perfect life, dies a death that we deserve, raises from the grave, and then offers us that life in exchange for ours. Let's be people that know that we love God because of what Jesus has done for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us this morning in our time of response? Help us be reminded of the truth. Help us be honest about the ways we've maybe been relaxed <laughs> with your commandments. And would you move us to a space that would follow your commandments? That as we get to know you and we get clarity of what those commandments are, we are clear to say yes to those things and no to our own way. Would you help us walk in the way you walked? And God, would you help us in the spaces we have deep, deep hurt for people that have wronged us and betrayed us? Would you help us release forgiveness to those people through the power of your spirit? We ask that you would do it in us and through us this morning. We want to know you. We want to walk with you. We want to understand what it means to be fully human and be a light in a dark place. God, help us do it. We ask it in your name.